let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word today. Would you use it powerfully in us uh, that we would know you better and that we would long to follow you more closely. Uh, You know what we need to hear this morning. So we ask that you would challenge us, encourage us, um, give us wisdom, uh, whatever it is that we need this morning from your word, we pray that you would uh, provide it. Uh, and that because of you and because of spending time with you, uh, we would be different uh, as we leave here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every story has an image, uh, something that we connect with it, right? Every great story. There's, there's a... Uh, there's an object or a scene, and when somebody mentions that story, uh, it immediately comes to mind. Right? So we have the Lord of the Rings. There's, well, a ring. Right? Uh, where there's uh, Beauty and the Beast, and you have this kiss that, uh, that changes everything. You have Harry defeating Voldemort. Uh, you have William Wallace uh, on his horse uh, in front of his troops. Uh, every man uh, dies, but not every man truly lives. Uh, you think of Frozen? Uh, you think of Let It Go. <laughs> uh, you have Darth Vader telling uh, Luke that he's his father. Uh, you have Elf, right? That great story, Elf, right? <laughs> where a grown man walks around in New York City uh, in an elf suit. Uh, there's all of these images that uh, come to mind right away when we think of these stories. I recently read A Tale of Two Cities, and on the cover is a guillotine, because it takes place during the French Revolution. And one of my kids saw me reading it, and they said, what's that? (laughs) So I had to sort of explain to them uh, what a guillotine was. Uh, But but the the image is so uh, central to the story that that you can see why they would put it it on there. uh, The story sort of surrounds this, uh, this one thing. So what comes to your mind when you think about the epic story of salvation, uh, this salvation of the Lord that God has done. What's the, what's the image? What's the picture uh, or the scene that comes to mind for you? Now, probably for uh, a lot of us, it's, uh, it's the cross, right? We would, uh, we would think of, uh, we would think of Jesus uh, there on, uh, on this cross. And yet, uh, and yet there's a, there's a story, there's a scene, there's an image uh, in scripture uh, that is foundational to all of what God does uh, in terms of salvation for uh, for his people. It's even at the heart of uh, of what we see happening on uh, on the cross. Um, there are uh, there's so many things, so many themes uh, that we can take from uh, from Exodus chapter 12. It would be uh, it'd be really hard for us to cover them all, and yet uh, and yet we we can't really understand the story of salvation the way it's portrayed in Scripture uh, without uh, without this chapter and without understanding it. I want to read to you uh, one author's list of sort of the things that they see uh, as, uh, as as themes and pictures and images that come from uh, from the Passover. He says, shelves could be filled with books on the significance of Passover, and probably have been. In a number of ways, the Passover is an obvious prelude to the work of Christ. It's about redemption from slavery by the blood of a lamb. It's about a sacrifice that passes through the fire and saves people from death, when everyone around them is facing judgment. It's about the power of faith worked out through obedience. 
Israelite families were not saved by their personal godliness that night or even by the amount of confidence they had in God. They were saved simply by the fact that the blood was over their house. But the Passover also carries a number of less obviously Christian meanings. It's about purity, a spotless lamb, the removal of leaven, a seven-day festival, and hyssop dipped in blood are all required. It's about suffering. The bitter herbs remind future Israelites of the way things were before they entered a land flowing with milk and honey. It's about unity. Entire households eat an entire lamb with none of its bones broken and none left over until the morning. It's about the nature of memorial. Much of the text focuses on the way Israel's life, liturgy, and worship will be shaped by the Passover celebration in the future. It's about the blessing of the nations. A mixed multitude is joined to Israel and allowed to share Passover as long as they're circumcised. It's about childbirth. As Egypt becomes a tomb covered in darkness and ash, Israel steps out from the womb through doorposts covered in blood, sets apart the firstborn sons, and later emerges into new life from a narrow passage through waters, which then close again behind them. So we'll, we'll never be able to talk about all of, uh, all of these things and all of the themes that we see as a part of this story. And, and yet uh, today and even over the next couple of weeks, we're going to try and look at, uh, at, at some of these and how they relate uh, to the salvation of God uh, through the blood of the Lamb. And we'll finish with looking, uh, today at least, with how Passover fits into the bigger story of Scripture. All with the hope that you'll walk away knowing the story of salvation uh, and with your faith resting in the Lamb of God who died instead of you. As we jump in, uh, there's going to be uh, there's, there's some repetition in this passage. Uh, and so I want to make sure we have sort of a clear overview or sort of outline of what the passage is. Uh, so if you uh, think about it quickly and you, and you look at it, verses 1 through 20 are God speaking to Moses and Aaron and giving them sort of instructions about what they are to do and what's going to happen on this uh, on this night. Then verses 21 through 27 are Moses talking to the elders of Israel so that they can then pass on these instructions that they've received from God to uh, to the Israelites. And so that's why there's a lot of overlap and a lot of repetition uh, between those two sort of larger sections. Verse 28 tells us that the Israelites actually go and do what it is uh, they were told to do. And then verses 29 through 33 are the account of what actually happened on uh, on that night. The Passover, this uh, this tenth plague, uh, as we've looked at the plagues over the last few weeks. And in these verses, we see a similar pattern to the plagues as well. God tells them this is what's going to happen. And then we see that exactly what he says happens is going to happen actually happens uh, according to his uh, plan. And I'll mention one more thing uh, just in general before we jump into our first point, And that's verse 29. If you look at verse 29, it says, At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Uh, this, is a, this is a terrible, tragic night. And Pastor Nathan did a good job of, of talking about sort of the severity of what happens uh, last, uh, last week. But here, you know, we have in, in God's word, this is God speaking through Moses about, uh, about this event. And you'll notice there's only one verse that 
sort of describes what actually happens on uh, on that night in terms of uh, in terms of the destruction. And I think I think that's because God doesn't take pleasure in the destruction that's uh, that's happening here. Uh, but as we've been talking about over the last uh, over the last few weeks, and as we'll talk about more in a minute, this night does bring glory to God. And it's necessary for the salvation of God's people, whom he loves a lot. And so that helps us sort of frame uh, what, it is that we're, uh, what it is that we're looking at. And so this leads us to our first point, the necessity of salvation. Uh, why is salvation necessary? And we're going to try and answer three questions uh, to, uh, to look at this. Uh, one, who needs to be saved? Two, why are we saved? And then three, how are we saved? So first, who needs to be saved? Verse 29 tells us that there is actual judgment for the hardening of hearts towards God. Pharaoh's been warned again and again, uh, but he refuses to listen. So God brings about this severe judgment. And the last couple of verses in this section show that it has its intended effect, at least for the moment. Think, think about that evening. Uh, you, one cry, and then another cry, and then another cry. And all of a sudden... The air of this, uh, of this evening is filled with the cries and the screams of people who are waking up to discover the horror of what's happened, uh, the death of, uh, of loved ones in their homes. And the destruction stretches even to Pharaoh and his household. Someone asked a good question this week. Uh, did the Egyptians hear the warning and could they have done the same thing the Israelites did so that they could be saved? From what we've seen in the plagues up until now, it seems that at least some people, some Egyptians, would hear Moses giving these warnings to uh, to Pharaoh, and so they may have heard what was going to happen. But what we see in these uh, in these last verses here, particularly in verses thirty, uh, no one, even if they did hear the warnings, uh, heeded them and uh, and and listened to what uh, uh, what was going to happen. So Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and tells them to leave without, uh, without any restrictions. Remember, uh, even after some of the previous plagues, Pharaoh would say, okay, you can go, but, and Pharaoh would sort of try and pretend like he was still in control, right? And try and uh, control the, control the situation. Well, here, Pharaoh simply tells them to go, right? God has won and, uh, and Pharaoh, uh, and Pharaoh knows it. God's defeated uh, the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh, uh, who they considered to be a god. And to add insult to injury, Pharaoh's last words to Moses are to ask Moses for a blessing from his god. But what this deadly night shows us is that the Egyptians weren't the only ones who needed to be saved. The Israelites needed the salvation of God as well. The whole first half of this chapter are instructions for how a family could be saved. Which means apart from God providing salvation, everyone would have received the destruction that they deserved. The Israelites have been in Egypt for hundreds of years now, and, uh, and these years have caused them to, to forget about God in a lot of ways. God is using a, a faithful Moses to rescue an unfaithful people. Now, hopefully they're beginning to come around as they, as they see what God is doing. And we get a glimpse of that even in our passage here as we're told at one point that the Israelites fall down and worship, uh, and worship God for what they're hearing. But we also know that up until now and even after this time, the Israelites are full of complaining and disobedience and unbelief. 
So look at what God tells Aaron and Moses in verses 12 and 13. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then look at what Moses tells the Israelites uh, as a result of that in verses 22 and 23. He says, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So when the destroyer comes, uh, this angel of the Lord that's going to bring judgment on uh, uh, people who have rebelled against God. Uh, there's uh, there, there's a protection that God is offering to uh, to his people. But uh, because they're not protected simply because they don't have any sin, they're, uh, they're protected because of what's on their doorposts, because they've put this blood on the sides of the doors and over uh, and over the top of it. One commentary uh, puts it this way. The blood is on the doors, not because God can't tell who's inside the house, but because he can He knows there are sinners inside. In every home throughout Egypt and Goshen, the death count is the same. The following morning, there is a corpse. The only question is, is it a lamb or is it a child? So who needs to be saved? Everyone. Now, why are we saved? First of all, God saves his people to be his people. God's instituting this ceremony, this practice to be done by his people, people uh, that belong to him. Look at verse three. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then look down at verse uh, six. It says, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. It's interesting, two of these phrases, the congregation of Israel in in, uh, verse 3... And uh, the whole assembly, right? These uh, these words, these phrases. This is the first time that they've been used in Scripture about Israel. God is drawing His people together and making them a community of people that worship Him. And think about how how salvation is described in the New Testament. Uh, take, for example, First uh, Peter chapter two. It says, "But you are a chosen race, a holy people." a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, salvation in the Old Testament and the New is about taking unworthy people who are far from him and making them his people. Because he's chosen to love them, to show them mercy. We see here in Exodus that God chooses the Israelites. He chooses to love them and to be merciful to them. And through this salvation, God is compelling these people to love him back. He loves them first, even uh, in the institution of Passover. It's interesting uh, that God's rescue is assumed. Look in verse uh, in verse 17. 
It says, and you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Now, it's sort of an awkward sentence because God says on this day, I brought past tense you out of Egypt. The problem is God hadn't actually brought them out of Egypt yet. So what does God mean? What's he trying to say here? Well, I think he's saying to these people, I have already decided to love you. And because I love you, I will save you. And when I save you, not if, but when I save you, you will want to keep this Passover because you will see how great a God I am and how much I've already done for you. God's love compels our love and obedience. Our obedience doesn't make God love us. So we're saved to be God's people. And as his people, we're also saved for a purpose. When we talk about the Israelites being saved from slavery to freedom, we have to make sure we're on the same page in terms of what freedom actually is. The elders have been working through a video that Pastor Nathan shot and is on our uh, YouTube channel about how to uh, share your faith with people around you. And it's a, it's a really uh, good video. I hope you'll take his encouragement to, to watch it and to, to learn it and even use it to be able to share uh, your faith with, uh, with people around, around you. And in it, in the video, he, uh, he talks about freedom for, uh, for a minute. And he makes an important distinction about, uh, about freedom uh, and about biblical freedom in particular. He says, salvation brings freedom, but it's not the freedom to do whatever you want, which is sort of what we typically think about freedom today. He says, the freedom the Bible talks about, the freedom we are created to experience, the freedom we most flourish in, is the freedom to do the right thing. So not the freedom to do whatever we want, but the freedom to do what's right. And we see this debate all the time right now, right? What, is, what does freedom mean to me? Does it mean I can just do whatever I want that makes me happy? Or is my freedom there so that I can do uh, what's right and what's good and what's good uh, for those around me? Look at verse uh, 25. It says, And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. You shall keep this service. The word service here is the same word used to describe the Israelites' service to Pharaoh, their slavery to Pharaoh. So in a sense, the Israelites are being rescued from service to Pharaoh, from slavery to Pharaoh, to service to God, to slavery to God. The difference is service to God isn't burdensome because it's what they're created for. It's... uh, it's a, it, that freedom is what's, it's what's best for them, uh, to be a slave uh, to, uh, to God. Uh, and it's what we're created for, too, to serve uh, our creator. Maybe you've heard the illustration of the uh, fish in his bowl before. We might look at a fish in his bowl of water and think, man, that fish seems so, uh, so restricted, right, in that, in that water and with the bowl. I'm, I want to set him free from his confinement, right? So, uh, so we take the fish out and we lay him down on the sidewalk and we say, run free, little fishy, right? Now, is the fish free outside of that bowl in the water? No. He's dead <laughs> because the confines of uh, his bowl and his water are actually in the, the environment where he's truly able to live and thrive. Right? This is where he's actually free is in where he was created to be. Freedom outside that bowl is actually slavery that leads to death. And for our fish, it's probably pretty quick death on that sidewalk. 
Uh, As slaves to Egypt, the Israelites worked without rest for a master who was never satisfied. Can you imagine what it would have been like to work day after day after day and it never be enough? No matter how hard you worked, no matter how much of yourself you put into your work, your master always demanded more. Well, if we think about it like that, maybe we're not all that different from the Israelites. Think about the things that we can become slaves to, that we can let master us. We become slaves to materialism, slaves to beauty, slaves to entertainment, slaves to relationships and success, slaves to what people think of us. Whatever it is, we find ourselves doing whatever it takes to satisfy these things. And these masters are never satisfied. It's never enough. Maybe you're trapped in this cycle of trying to prove yourself day after day. Like, uh, like Rocky. You remember Rocky, the, the movie Rocky? What a, what a great movie. Rocky was sort of a philosopher, right? He had all of these great lines throughout, uh, throughout his movies. And in the first movie, he's talking to Adrian about this fight that's coming up with Apollo Creed. And if you remember, uh, he's talking to her and he says, you know, I'm not concerned about whether I win or lose. Right? He says, I just want to go the distance. Right? He says, if I could just be standing when that last bell rings and still be up uh, in the ring, what does he say? He says, I'll be able to prove that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. How many of us are spending our lives trying to prove that we're not just another bum from the neighborhood? And no matter how hard we try, it's just not enough. I think we all feel this way. I feel this way all the time. Even when I think about something like uh, like preaching, like coming up here and preaching, I I battle this temptation to make it about uh, about me, right? To think about well, how good am I doing, or what are you thinking about me? Instead of enjoying this freedom that I have to do what I'm doing simply for the glory of God and to know uh, that it brings Him pleasure. And here, God offers salvation for the Israelites and for us. Freedom from slavery to these lesser masters so they can be free to serve the one true God. So we can be free to serve him. And scripture tells us, apart from God, this is impossible. It's impossible to please God. But in Christ, we have freedom to live as his dearly loved children. So, who needs to be saved? All of us. And why are we saved? To be the people of God, free to live for the glory of God. And now, how are we saved? Well, we're saved by the blood of the Lamb. Look at verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. And then look over at verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then look down at verses 21 through 23. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. 
we've, we've said it before. The Israelites are not saved because they're better than the Egyptians, because they're smarter than the Egyptians, even because they're holier than the Egyptians. They are saved by the mercy of God through the blood of the Lamb. With the blood on their doorposts, they have salvation. And without it, they face destruction like everyone else. This is what sin does. It, it separates us from God because God's standard is perfection. And we know that we're not it. If we're honest, we often don't even meet our own standards for the type of life we want to live and the type of person that we want to be. So if we can't meet our own standards a lot of the time, we definitely don't meet God's standard of perfection. So notice what kind of lamb is called for in verse 5. It's a lamb without blemish, a spotless lamb without fault. And it's the blood of the spotless lamb that meets God's standard to save people who fall short of that same standard. Colin Bowie is an associate professor of mechanical engineering at MIT. And listen to what he says in a recent interview I read about, uh, about his faith. He says, Jesus is compelling to me because I find the need to rehearse the gospel message every single day. Each morning I'm reminded that I'm not perfect and fall short of my own expectations, much, much less God's. But at the same time, I'm loved more than I could ever imagine. I need to hear those words every single day to keep from becoming either overconfident or falling into despair. This is the, the gospel message, the, the salvation story, that we can see the evidence of our sin and rebellion against God every day in our lives. But God loves us so much that even while we're still sinners, God sent his son Jesus to die in our place and for our sin. Jesus is the lamb of God, the lamb without blemish who dies instead of us. Our sins are many, we sing, but his mercy is more. So the blood of the Lamb saves the Israelites, and the blood of Jesus is what saves us as well. And we'll talk more in a minute about how all of Scripture points to Jesus as this sacrificial Lamb of God. But do you remember what else he says in that interview? He said he needs to hear that message every day, and so do we. Because like him, we all tend to move sort of in extremes, some days we feel so confident in ourselves and in our abilities that we go through the day and rarely think about God because we don't feel like we need him. And so he's not even uh, really a concern to us. And yet on other days we despair. We think God could never love me or forgive me because of the things that I've done. And what brings us back sort of from both of these extremes is remembering our salvation, rehearsing this gospel message over and over and over again every single day. And this is what we're uh, going to see next. This is what we see in uh, even in our passage. Now, I realize you're probably starting to wonder how many hours are left in this sermon because we've just finished <laughs> point number one. But uh, the, uh, the, the next two points are much shorter. Don't worry. Uh, I have to sit and listen to this with my kids tomorrow as well. So I'm, <laughs> I am mindful of, <laughs> of it. Uh, so we've talked about the necessity of salvation. Uh, our second point is uh, the remembrance of our salvation. An important part of understanding what God is doing here is not just how he's saving them, but the lengths he's going to to help them remember this salvation. 
Now, I know I talk about the power of habits uh, a lot, but I think it's what we I think it's what we see in Scripture over and over again. This is how God works in His Word. He gives us practices and and pictures to shape us by reminding us of who He is and what He's done. God knows we are forgetful people. So he wants to make sure that the story of his power and of his mercy are ingrained in his people. That these mighty works are remembered and celebrated. Now, God's alluded to it before in Exodus, but we we see it here. Uh, Look at verse 14. He says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. See, this is, it's a memorial. Uh, To be the people of God is to remember what he has done and to build your life around what it is uh, that he's done. And it's interesting, right? In verse 15, the penalty for not remembering is to be cut off from the people of God. But that makes sense, doesn't it? If what it means to be the people of God is to remember what he's done and to build your life around it, to forget what God has done uh, is to forget uh, God himself and to be apart from him. And think about the vivid symbols that God uses uh, to help them remember. A, A perfect lamb who dies instead of them. Bitter herbs to remember the bitterness of slavery. Unleavened bread to remember the swiftness with which uh, God rescued them. Even the fact that uh, God puts, uh, he rescues them at the beginning of the year, the first month of the year, so that every year they will start out celebrating this great thing that God has done for them. This amazing thing that God has done to show his, uh, his love for them. Because God's mercy is what fuels our ability to live for him. Randy, our three-year-old, is hitting his toddler rebellious stage. So he's started, uh, when you ask him to do something or tell him to do something, uh, he just sort of grunts, right? He's like, right? <laughs> and you're like, all right. And, uh, and then if you're, uh, if you're lucky, all right, he will add to that grunt, uh, like folding his hands and being like, I am so frustrated, right? And then like sort of stomping off, right? Uh, now, you know, it was cute like the first hundred times. <laughs> uh, it gets old, uh, it gets old quickly. But how often is that our response to what God is calling us to do? So what teaches us to respond differently? We don't just work harder to enjoy God more. We remember what God has done. We remind ourselves of the kindness of God. The fact that he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And that's what captures us. That's what turns us to joyful obedience. God wanted this for the Israelites and he wants it for us too. Now look at verses 24 through 27. It says, you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. They were to tell their kids about God's power both to destroy and to save. This is how they were to instill the fear of the Lord in, uh, in their children. We've talked about how terrible these events are, and yet the Israelites rehearsed all of the details with their kids regularly. They didn't sugarcoat or water down the stories like uh, maybe so many of our children's Bibles do today. 
And I think it's important for us to help our kids encounter the actual God of the Bible as well. When we talk about how many students uh, walk away from the faith of their childhood, I think a lot of times they're not walking away from the actual Jesus of the Bible. They're walking away from uh, just a watered-down version that they've, uh, that they've heard over the years. Uh, and, they, and they've never actually encountered uh, the real Jesus of the Scriptures. Listen to Robert Capon talking about this. He says, My idea of Christian education, therefore, is to give them the straight, unedited stuff, just the stories exactly as they were told, with the urge to explain them or to explain them away firmly strapped in the back seat. Children's minds are an empty gallery with no biblical pictures on the walls at all. Our job is simply to hang up the pictures in that gallery. Then, later on in life, when they happen to wander through the gallery, at least the original weird masterpieces will be there for them to look at again. And maybe they'll see some things they've never noticed before. But if all you give them is the infant Jesus in velvet pants or a lot of stuff labeled religion, they'll just figure it's too tame to have anything to do with the wildness and weirdness of life as they actually experience it. So what pictures of Jesus, what pictures of his uh, salvation that he offers to us, what pictures of the life he calls us to as his people, are you hanging in the minds of the next generation? Telling the next generation about the salvation of our God, it's a good thing to talk about on, uh, on Mother's Day. This is the primary role for us as parents. It's a huge responsibility, uh, but it's also a, a gift and, and a privilege and a joy. Now, we also acknowledge that God doesn't call everyone to be a parent. But not being a parent doesn't mean you're not included in this passage or exempted from helping pass the story on to the next generation. You're part of the family of God, and this is our calling together. Student ministry leaders, Sunday school teachers, uh, pray for me partners, children's church workers, nursery workers. Uh, even, even think about the vow you take with each baby we baptize up here. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of helping these parents uh, raise their children in the Christian nurture of this child? Uh, all together, uh, all together we're called to work as the family of God, to remember God's salvation, and to help others remember it as well. Now, we've talked about the necessity of our salvation and the remembrance of our salvation, but finally I want to look at the story of our salvation. The Passover is such a central event to the understanding of the salvation of the Lord. But it fits into the bigger story of what God is doing to rescue people to himself. So I want us to look backwards a little bit and then look forward uh, to help us see how Passover fits into, uh, into what, what God is doing. It's hard to think about Passover without going back a little further to Abraham and his son Isaac. God tells Abraham to take his firstborn uh, to the top of a mountain and to sacrifice him there. Now, Abraham understood that, uh, you know, in, in his culture, they understood that the oldest son bore the weight of, uh, of the sins and the mistakes of, uh, of the family. And so he takes his son and they go to this mountain uh, to, uh, to sacrifice. And when they get there, Isaac, very observant young man, he, uh, he looks around and he says, we have the fire, we have the sticks, we have everything that we need for the sacrifice, but the thing to sacrifice. And what does Abraham tell him? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb. And Abraham puts Isaac on the altar 
and he goes to kill him and he, and he has the knife up and God stops him. Right? At the last minute, God says, now I know that you uh, were willing to sacrifice even your only son. And they look over, and in the thicket, there's, uh, there's a ram, right? It's not, uh, it's not a lamb, but it's a ram, and they take it, and the, and the ram dies instead of the firstborn son, Isaac. So then we jump ahead to our passage today with the account of Passover. God rescues the firstborn of the Israelites through the blood of the lamb. The lamb dies instead of them. But there's a problem. The Israelites are rescued from Egypt, but they'll still die. The sacrifice is sufficient for life, but not eternal life. And on top of that, they have more sacrifices to do. They'll sacrifice lots of lambs. They'll sacrifice lots of animals. Israel's worship then becomes defined by the blood of the sacrifice of animals. So then we look ahead uh, and we jump ahead to the Gospels. John chapter 1. John the Baptist is there. He's baptizing people. He's uh, preparing the way uh, for for God's uh, Savior. And one day he's there and he looks out and he sees uh, Jesus coming. And he looks and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. John knows the story of Abraham and his firstborn son. John knows the story of the Passover where the lamb dies instead of the firstborn. And he sees Jesus and he knows this is the lamb that will die instead of us. Once for all time to take away the sins of the world. To rescue the people he came to die for. If you skip ahead just a few years, uh, you have Jesus' last meal with his disciples. What meal is it? It's the Passover meal. And as they eat, Jesus explains, this this meal is a reminder for us to look back to that night in Egypt. But it's always also been something that's pointing forward to me and to what I'm about to do for you. And the next day, Jesus walked on that same mountain that Abraham took his only son to. And he hangs on the cross in our place. God himself provides the sacrifice for us. God gives his one and only son. And Jesus, who lived a perfect life in our place, the lamb without blemish, dies for our sins instead of us. If we look through the rest of the New Testament, the apostles make this connection all through it. Uh, There's uh, the story in Acts of this Ethiopian who's in his chariot, he's reading Isaiah, and he reads, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And he asked the apostle Philip, who is this talking about? And it says Philip goes to the beginning of the scriptures, and he points all through the scriptures to the ways that all of this is about Jesus. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Peter says, we've been ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, this is the story of the Christian faith. The gospel story of a lamb who dies instead of us. This was God's plan from the very beginning. Not that we would earn our way to him, but that he would come down and give himself for us. And do you know how this story ends for those who put their faith in Jesus? Well, if you were to turn to the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, it describes thousands of angels singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And along with those angels, 
would be all those who belong to Jesus saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. They would know that the only reason they are there in the presence of God is because of the blood of the lamb. So as we finish talking about the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, what do we, what do we do? I think you start with what John the Baptist told us to do. You behold the Lamb. You behold Him. You consider what He's done to make salvation possible for you. And to turn from your sin to serve this Savior who loves you and gave Himself for you. And then we remember. We remember the story of our salvation. And we rejoice. We rejoice in that remembrance. Because salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the salvation that you offer to us that belongs to you. This is your Passover. Uh, This is your Son uh, who you gave uh, for us. Give us faith to believe today, to put our trust Uh, Not in ourselves, uh, but in our Savior, uh, in the Lamb uh, who died in our place uh, for us. Thank you for uh, this good news. Help us to believe it uh, and help our lives to be shaped around it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.